Suzuki's super-fast Hayabusa rocked the world as soon as it first came out in 1999, becoming a cult bike from then on. In this podcast, we speak to five men who've bonded with the super-powerful machine for very differing reasons. First up is journalist Martin Child, who, like me, rode the bike at its launch in Catalonia in Spain. So, Martin, we've got the pleasure of talking to you from Australia. Um, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, as you know, we want to talk to you about the uh, your first experience on the Hayabusa because you were at the launch at Catalonia in 1999. Uh, what what memories do you have of that then, Mark? I think probably the overriding memory of that Hayabusa was the fact that we hadn't really seen anything like it before in terms of the styling of it. So, you know, this is an era where the new R1 had just come out and things were getting shorter and lighter. We were in love with superbikes. And then suddenly this, this you know, massive GSX-R comes out and uh, it kind of, it didn't seem to fit anywhere. You know, it was obviously a natural progression from the, the, the 750 Strats in that bulbous sort of looking bodywork. But it, it kind of instantly became a bit of an orphan in terms of where to put it in terms of family. So there was interest in it. I'd say the looks, when you first looked at it, and even to this day, it is a very distinctive bike, but it's, it's maybe not as fond as something like, you know, you think back of a Katana or an early Slabby, you have very um, beautiful memories because they're good looking bikes, you know, like I've always thought the Hyabus was a little bit of an awkward looking bike, um, but that obviously changed when we actually, when we actually got to the circuit and uh, started to ride them. What, what were your initial impressions then as soon as you yanked the throttle? Uh, even before we got on there, when we had the press um, technical information briefing the day before, I kind of thought it was quite a brave move by Suzuki to launch it at a circuit for the first day because this is a very heavy bike, very powerful, but not massively high up on the ground clearance. And, um, you know, there's a lot of power. At that time, journalists were professional journalists, she would say, you know, like you're working for a magazine for, or a newspaper day in, day out. We were doing so much riding and racing, you know, like we're all on the top of our games, to be fair. Uh, but we all got on the bikes and nobody had any problems. I mean, these, these are bikes that introduce you to sliding the rear coming out of a corner. You know, an R1 can lay a bit of rubber down coming out of a corner, but this thing would start to smoke and slide in the hands of people that were kind of in tune with with power so it was it was a great time to be honest to be a journalist on a great circuit on a great bike were you surprised i mean i certainly was and you, you've hinted at this this was not a lightweight was it It wasn't a very focused sports bike it was, a, it was a weighty super powerful thing but it seemed to handle perfectly well and feel and feel safe and i think the power was the key it was so linear that you had this immense uh, reserve of power to it, but wherever you opened the throttle, it was smooth. With the long wheelbase, the bike wasn't going to suddenly snap. So you had that confidence to drive out the corners and feel that rear digging in, then start to let go. But also, you'd expect it to be a slower turner than it than it actually was. It actually was handling the circuits really well. I mean, it wasn't obviously as nimble as a uh, you know a Super Sport 600, but it it didn't feel at all out of place on the track. After the test itself, none of the bikes had gone down, which, you know, we weren't reckless about then. Well, personally, I'll speak for the rest of us, Chris. But, you know, you were on the launch. Obviously, Suzuki would have 
factored that in. I think there's some tanks and bearings there, but even even you even you couldn't or didn't fall off, which I think is a mark of any bike. But um, you know, there there was a good chance with such a smooth power. If you don't know what you're doing, that smooth power can bite you because you're obviously going to go so fast on a bike that's low and heavy. If it does bite, it's going to throw you into orbit. But I don't remember anybody having any real issues with it, even though we're all trying, even on the road, you know, we're getting these tires to squirm and slide coming out corners. I mean, we all know where that can go and nothing like that happened. It was all, you know, like if you're a good rider, you'll get on with this bike. You know, it, 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 it opens itself to you. It's not as, you can probably get away of being a bit more ham-fisted than something on a lighter bike that's just going to catch you unawares. So very stable, very planted. Um, and, you know, like if, if you like that being a bit different from the mainstream, it's still a bike that's very distinctive. If you're looking through secondhand uh, bike ads, you can see a, a Hybris or a mile away. I mean, did you end up writing pretty complimentary things about it then? Yeah, like I say, if you see something, obviously that's one dimension. And obviously when you've had a few days riding it, you've got the whole 3D picture. So, you know, like I, like I referred to earlier, the looks aren't to everybody's taste but the, I think the way the bike rode was to a lot of people's taste. What did you think of it the next day when we rode on the or was it the afternoon in fact when we rode it on the road? I think it, I think it was the next day I think Suzuki put it up for a night <laughs> but um, it was it was probably one of the most surreal memories of being a journalist for 20, 20 years is going on the payages on the motorways in around Barcelona, where somebody from Suzuki was at the toll booth paying for us. And so basically we didn't have to slow down. It was like a rolling start, you know, we didn't have to even launch off the line. We just went through the toll booths. And previously we've obviously got the idea that these are pretty fast bikes and things like, you know, I'm there full custom race leathers and suddenly they're feeling a bit baggy. The helmet's feeling a bit loose on my head. The gloves are flapping around, you know, it's a new experience, and we're, we're going down the payage. I, I clearly remember, I think there was five of us from the UK on on these bikes, and we were in a line going down the motorway, and obviously just bimbling along at about, I don't know, 170, 180. And uh, the motorway's pretty deserted, but I remember there was a car on the inside, which, let's face it, would have been doing 70. There was a car in the middle overtaking that, car which is probably doing 80 85 and we were doing a hundred mile an hour faster than the pair of them and i remember going past one and just glimpsing in thinking if i hit the back of this i'm going to be in the glove box it was such a you know like it was a bit of an out-of-body experience because you know there's just things that just come up so fast at that speed but you had to experience it obviously because our job is to tell the wider public so you know we did it for them Martin, did you subsequently test it at Brunting Thought then for top speed? Yes, we did. We did. And that was a little bit, we had a radar there which was slightly out of date. So we recorded 200 mile an hour on it. Um, whether it was an exact 200 mile an hour, but it was there or thereabouts. So uh, again, the same sensation. You know, you get on a bike that's just that little bit faster and everything you're used to riding, and things happen so much quicker. The forces on your body are just magnified, you know, like from the difference from 160 mile an hour to 180 is a big leap, you know, it's double the amount of wind on you, that your helmet, and especially at Brunnenthorpe where you, where you basically come out of the bubble, 
you know, this thing obviously accelerates quick, but you're going 200 miles an hour, you're getting down that runway pretty quick. So you're making sure you're hitting your brake marker at the end. But as you come out of the bubble at, you know, 170, 108 mile an hour, and you've got the brakes on, you know, it does try to force you off the back of your bike. You know, like, I haven't been that fast probably since, and I probably would want a bit of a warm up if I was doing it again today. I mean, how much more did you subsequently go and ride it in the UK after that then on group tests and just general rides through the uh, the, the lovely English countryside? Uh, to be fair, quite a lot. Because I think it, because until sort of Karazaki brought, brought out the ZX-12, it was kind of a bit of an orphan up there. You, got, you had the Blackbird, but that didn't really have the same impact as this. So it got invited on a few tests where different capacities were being tested. So uh, it did get probably, if it was just something like the R1, the R1 was only ever tested against other Lisa superbikes. But because it was a bit of an orphan, it got invited to other tests just as a bit of a curiosity. This is what you could have, and this is what you can have beside. So there was that uh, that sort of like free-flown invitation, and it was on quite a few track days, quite a few road tests. So yeah, did quite a few miles on them. Uh, did you rate it? Did you end up liking it a lot? Is it one of your sort of favourite bikes looking back? I think one thing that really highlighted it was the fact that um, I was riding back from a track day with one of my good friends and he was a good rider and um, he was, I think he was on an R1 or maybe the Jersey Tar 1000 that come out by then, but it was quite a bumpy road and quite a windy day and uh, I was obviously having a lot easier time on the Hayabusa going cross-country at a decent, decent whack just because it was so planted. So there was, there was benefits to that extra bit of weight, extra bit of um, wheelbase that uh, obviously a lighter bike just hasn't got. I mean, it, it's a bit of an uh, indictment as to how much, uh, how impressive it was, the fact that you can remember it in such detail 20 years on. I mean, it, it is one of the most memorable bike launches that I think, isn't it? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, you know, there, there's sexier bikes, there's funkier bikes, but as a, as a package that may be surprised, there's there's very few, like I say, in 20 years that have, have etched that memory. Now we head off to the USA to speak to Editor-in-Chief at Cycle World, Mark Hoyer, who was also at the World Press launch. He tells us about that and the Hayabusa culture in America. Mark, many thanks for joining us from the uh, US of A, from sunny California, I presume? Yeah, that's right, Southern California. It is a beautiful sunny day and I'm delighted to be here. I hate you already. Right, tell me about Hayabusa's. Are you a fan? What's your experience? Tell me some stories. I started testing bikes in 94 and... Uh, I started doing press launches not too long after that. And so you get kind of accustomed to going on press launches and hearing the, the PR materials. And so by the time I got to the Hayabusa launch at Circuit de Catalunya, uh, circa 1998, I sort of had my, my um, harsh clinical detachment on. You know, I was ready to be like, oh, la-di-da. They got the, the PR backhoe out, as they do. Like, it's the job. You know, it's, this is the most remarkable thing. And they said, this motorcycle is ultimate sport. 
And so you just sit back and you're like, ultimate sport. Like, what is that? I mean, come on. I mean, I know it's big and it's fast and everything. And then we got on the track. We did a day and a half at Circuit de Catalunya. And it was remarkable. It was overwhelmingly fast. I mean, you you know, it's that famous last corner. You come down onto the straightaway. And that motorcycle accelerated as hard in fifth gear as most other bikes accelerated in third gear. You were out on the highway and i i just i it was remarkable i i hit red line in fifth gear on the road and i i thought something had happened and i'm like oh sixth gear and i clicked sixth gear and we still went i mean it was just it is it made a remarkable impression at that time and then really kind of dominated the the large bore market here i mean we're so quarter mile focused you know there's so much street race type stuff and and uh you know we've always loved the quarter mile in america and so that motorcycle came in and it, it really, it became the foundation for all of that. And then it built a remarkable aftermarket. I mean, it's uh, turbos and nitrous and now it's to the point where the recipes are really well established. And if you want to take your Hayabusa and do standing mile to 250 miles an hour or quarter miles in the low sevens or sixes, I mean, you just, you just call somebody and you ask for, these pistons, this cylinder block, this head modification, all that stuff. And it's, it's, uh, it really, it altered the performance culture, really. I mean, it, it was so big and so fast. I mean, it truly did live up to the hype, that bike, didn't it? It absolutely did live up to the hype. I mean, and not just live up to it, but exceed it. It was just gobsmacking. I mean, it just everything about it, as I said, they said, we've invented a category called ultimate sport. And it it fulfilled that and, and beyond. I mean, I can tell you're enjoying the recollection of it all now. You know, there are, there are a few remarkable historic things that have happened in the industry since I've been involved in 94. And the Suzuki Hayabusa is one of them. It changed everything. It, it really did. I mean, we... I was at Cycle News when I tested that bike at the press launch, and then I was hired at Cycle World. So I did I did a test on the bike for Cycle News. I did I top speed tested it, wrote the story, and then I got hired at Cycle World, and I picked the bike up as a long term test bike. It was copper. It was the beautiful beautiful color, and I just started playing with it. I did a Yoshimura exhaust and some other stuff, but I would go. For example, on a Friday afternoon, I'd work until about 4 o'clock. I'd have bags on the bike, tank bag, you know, soft bits in the tank bag so I could put my chest on it. And I'd ride 12 hours uh, up north to a track called um, Thunder Hill in Willows, California. It's middle of nowhere. I got there at midnight. I got up at 6 a.m. and I did a two-day uh, track school with Jason Pridmore, uh, the star school. And then end of Sunday, I got back on the bike and rode it home. You know, I had my little my chest rest and I could get behind the bubble and it was real comfortable and I showed up for work on time Monday morning. And there are a few motorcycles where you could really do that and enjoy it. So yes, all these recollections. I mean when when you contacted me to talk about the Hayabusa, it's like, yeah, that's this is uh you know, it's it made such a remarkable impression in the market. So has it become quite a cult bike in the US then, full stop? Yeah, it's definitely the the Suzuki Hayabusa is definitely a cult bike here. Uh, the fan base is big. And I mean, there have been other players 
in the space you know in the early days there were a couple contenders but you had they were sort of bookending the thing about the hayabusa that was remarkable was its overall balance i mean the the way the ways that i've seen that motorcycle used are amazing like you have guys who are dedicated sport tours who have the thing set up with bags and it's and it's remarkable i mean third gear you can probably mm, i'd say you, you could run third gear from five miles an hour to like 155 miles an hour the torque is so broad and the way it delivers power it's it's amazing so it's made an impression there you have just regular old motorcycle folks who love it for sport touring or sport riding and then you've got the drag the drag people where it's really dominated do you see a lot of modified boozers, you know, with different bodywork paints, longer swinging arms, fancy wheels, you know, more show than go, perhaps? I see a lot of fancy stuff going up and down the strip at Daytona, for instance. Um, sure, yeah. It's been a, it's also been a pretty remarkable customizing platform. The things I have seen, uh, you know, in Daytona Beach, you have all the sanctioned racing going on. And then you also have this whole uh, kind of nighttime subculture that happens at the Hess station. And it's really, there's a, a Hess fuel station in town and everybody kind of gathers there and it's, you know, it's part bike show. And then there's the people who, are, who show up who are really, you know, there to, to I mean, you watch money change hands and then they, they go do stuff off in the woods and uh, drag race. But the, the whole custom culture, I mean, the things I've seen where, uh, theme bikes where you have like superhero themes and crazy bodywork. There was one where, uh, you know, the scary clown, right? There's a scary clown theme in, in movies and stuff. And it, the headlight was, the headlight had like fashion jaws around it. Like, I don't know what they use, glass fiber or something, but it had teeth around the head headlight and it had all this other paint on it. And it was like the scary clown theme, uh, length and swing arms, lowered suspension, uh, wide, wide tires, huge tires, polished, chromed, everything. Um, there has been some truly remarkable creative work done around that motorcycle. If the standard Hayabusa is not quick enough, Sean Mills, boss of Big CC, the walking and bass tuning firm, tells us how he makes them go even faster. How does an extraordinary 272 mile an hour from a thousand horsepower Hayabusa sound? Sean, thanks for helping us with this podcast. Um, I'm sure what you're about to say is bloody impressive uh, simply because you're in the business of making an already very fast motorbike a hell of a lot faster. Yeah, we've been tuning high buses now for 21 years. Uh, we've done higher buses in normally aspirated format with big bore, stroker cranked, high compression motors. We've done supercharged higher buses and turbocharged and even put nitrous oxide into them. At the moment, uh, we've managed to get higher buser horsepower figures as high as 1,000 horsepower at the crank. Hang on, hang on. You need to pause there for us to take that in. A thousand horsepower at the crank. Yeah, we've we've seen at the rear wheel 936 horsepower, but we couldn't get the dyno to actually <laughs> log the readings higher than that because it would just freak the dyno out. So, um, 
we we kind of settled at that. It would have gone over a grand thousand, but at the end of the day, for the dyno won't record it. It won't record it. What what did you have in that to boost the power by that amount? Uh, basically, we did a combination of a bore and stroked large capacity fifteen fifty engine. What that size of engine does, it allows you to run a larger than normal turbocharger that in turn has the airflow through it from the higher busser engine to be able to to be able to boost correctly and we add that up to 40 45 pound a boost to create some of those figures um typically the turbo systems on run-of-the-mill road bikes or competition bikes are running a lot less than that and to be honest with you we haven't had the opportunity to run those sort of power figures in, in any track format because when they get start getting over 700 horsepower in drag racing terms, it sort of becomes unmanageable. <laughs> you don't, you don't say. <laughs> We've got a couple hundred horsepower to spare that we don't know what to do with. <laughs> I mean, what does that nine, that thousand horsepower one? Let's settle to label it that way. What, what's that like to ride? I mean, that that's for a drag bike, isn't it? Which is what you specialise in. What, what, on the road, could you make one with 500 horsepower that was quite usable, do you think? Uh, we've done better than that. Um, we've done several loads of customers on five, six, 650 horsepower bikes. But the technology that we put into the 1,000 horsepower bike, we actually put into a road-legal motorcycle. And that has been used land speed racing and we've took that up to 272 miles an hour that's with the standard fairings which is quite an important distinction because a lot of people go fast in land speed racing with um, special aero fairings that allow the bike to go a lot faster uh, we use the standard suzuki aerodynamics other than infilling the ram air the ram air ducts uh, and that took it to 272, and that is uh, the fastest road legal bike in the world. And that's going through speed traps, um, tag hour speed traps that are used by the straightliners crew. Um, so the, the, the times, the speeds and stuff are properly verified, and the 272 miles an hour was actually an average speed over a quarter of a mile. So the actual terminal speed could have been a little bit higher than that, we think. What what do you think you could get if you had complete freedom, Sean, and a full length of runway as long as you liked? How fast do you think you could get out of that bike? The bike would easily go over three hundred miles an hour um, on a on a long enough runway, but it's finding a long enough runway. Now, just going back to that aero uh, issue, that that interested me. Is the standard uh, bodywork good for cutting through the air, or can you improve upon it still? You can improve upon it a lot, but it is good for cutting it through the air um, compared to a lot of other bikes. Uh, the slightest bit of wind dramatically affects how the bike handles. So the standard Hayabusa bodywork gives, gives the best option for side wind that we find. If you can find zero side wind, then the aerodynamic bodywork probably adds 15 to 20 miles an hour at that speed onto, onto the bike that you're already doing. Um, so there's a big impact with aeros, but the way in which we looked at it was just uh, stick a lot of power in it, more than anybody had used before, and uh, it'll, it'll go fast, and that's what it did. The golden crown is 
achieving 300 miles an hour within a standing mile. And hopefully we'll, this year, if we get out this year with what's going on, we'll see, we'll see what occurs. Can I, can I just go through a few sort of key parts and you tell me how much they might differ from the standard? Um, do, does your 1,000-horsepower engine have the standard crankcases? Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, the critical point of building big, big power engines uh, and choosing the type of engine that you're going to use, like the Hayabusa, in comparison to other manufacturers' engines, um, is to do with the strength and integrity in the cases, the size of the case bolts that they use. Don't get me wrong, we, we change those, but a lot of the threads are fixed threads that you can, fixed thread diameters that you can't change. The strength of the gearbox shafts, especially uh, the, the the thickness of the gearbox bearings. I mean, typically a, 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 the standard busser crank that's good for seven hundred horsepower. Even standard right. higher busser con rods are good for three hundred and fifty horsepower. Uh, a, a standard higher busser head without any port flowing on a turbo will flow over 600 horsepower. Uh, the blocks are pretty unbustable on the higher busser. Um, we, we modify a lot of the, uh, all, all the big turbo engines we modify with 12 millimeter, 12 millimeter heavy duty studs instead of the standard 10 millimeter studs to go through the head blocking cases. Um, and we actually tap down deeper than Suzuki do to put more thread into the cases. And, you know, and the amount of thread that you can put in the case is also a, a, a point because obviously if you've got that much horsepower in, and compression in the cylinders, it's wanting to lift the head up uh, and stretch those, stretch those studs and pull the threads out the cases. And so generally the overall integrity of the crankcases, um, the block, the head, stuff like this is very vital to what to what we're doing and increasing the horsepower and it just shows really how Suzuki have over-engineered that that engine uh, whereby which people are able to um, put these engines into hill climb sprint cars or circuit racing cars stick turbos on them and go endlessly round and round circuits doing uh, shoving three four five hundred horsepower in them I mean what we're doing is short sharp and fierce but some of the other applications like um you know like like circuit racing in cars where you've got two huge tires which don't slip so they're loading the loading the cases up etc a lot more that's as much if not more of a of a proof of how good the engine is really compared to um compared to shoving 900 horsepower for it for, for a dyno run or 700 700 horsepower for a land speed run you know some of those guys are doing it for hours on end what's the sort of maddest application you've ever heard of for one of your modified boozer engines i mean we actually sold to a customer in thailand an 800 horsepower package and he was actually fitting that in a chopper as sean says the higher boozer's engine is used to make four wheelers go fast too Will Brown of Radical Sports Cars tells us more. Now, you've got three cars, have you not? Uh, the SR1, SR3 and SR8, is that true or do you make others? 
there's there's a seven car range in, in total, but sort of the mainstay oh. of our range, absolutely right, are the uh, the SR1, the SR3, and the SR8. They're our main uh, our main cars. So um, for anybody that's sort of not familiar with with what we are, Radical is is a specialist in uh, building lightweight track focused sports and racing cars. So we sell cars to private individuals and teams all around the world, um, and they're they're aimed at people, I suppose, that if you know, if you've done a lot of track days in maybe a GT car or a, a tuned road car, um, a Radical is kind of the next logical step if you want a more professional product because it's designed for one purpose and one purpose only, which is to go on track fast. You know, it's not designed to go shopping. It's not designed for, for carrying the family. It's purely designed as a racing car in mind, but very much with an eye to ease of maintenance owner people basically running their own car rather than requiring all the expense and complication of getting somebody to run it for you now the bit we're particularly interested in and the link with bikes is the engine you use the engine from the suzuki hayabusa um can you tell me uh, just what you do to these engines to make them car fit if you like so well it depends really on on the model so um We've already mentioned so that the one three and the and the SRA all use um, to varying degrees um, some Suzuki engine componentry, um, and we've we've had this relationship now with Suzuki for for twenty one years. In fact, since that the Hayabusa was first launched back in ninety nine, the SR one, which is our entry level product, a little two seater sports car, that uses the Hayabusa engine pretty much untouched as it comes from Suzuki. So we. Uh, we take the engine, we fit a, a few bits and pieces that are required for its, its use in, in a car, so a dry sump lubrication system, but apart from that, it's, it's basically untouched. Is it completely standard regarding gearbox, clutch? Yep, standard cranks, standard rods, standard pistons, standard cams, standard gearbox internals, um, yeah, and standard clutch, and the clutch we use, we use that on the, uh, the SR3 as well. You know, people often think, oh, when you're hauling around 600 kilograms of car, doesn't that kill clutches absolutely not i've been with the business 11 years now and i've never seen a high boost of clutch fail that is a great testament to the durability of that engine isn't it absolutely absolutely um for the sr3 we do a little bit more that's a slightly longer stroked engine so a bit bigger capacity um uh, and then that's fitted in the sr3 and then for the sr8 um, we use the suzuki high booster cylinder head technology um, and fit that to our own V8 engine uh, that we produce in-house, uh, naturally aspirated V8 engine, very small capacity, it's only 2.7 litres, but produces about 460 horsepower. Now, you, you say that's a V8, that one. Can we concentrate a bit on that? I mean, you're basically welding two Boozer engines together, are you not? Well, it's, it's a bit more advanced than that. So we, we actually show, uh, produce a bespoke crankshaft uh, and, and crankcase. So the bottom end of the engine is is our is our own design. Um, so that's a bespoke component. Um, but yeah, the uh, the top end of the engine, so from the barrels upwards in terms of the, the cylinder head technology, the valve train, that's all from lifted from the from the 1340 Hayabusa variant. So, you know, Cylinder flow technology, gas flowing technology is is something you know the amount of investment that Suzuki have put into that is something that we could only ever dream of. So um, to to have something that's such a well developed and obviously we we know that technology from our use with the four cylinders as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so we effectively we're mating that that cylinder technology and know how to our bottom end to produce something that's been a, a phenomenally successful product. So we produced the first SR SR8 back in two thousand and five. 
um, amongst the way it's it's held the the Nurburgring production car lap record uh, on on multiple occasions. Um, you know, it's it's a an incredible engine, incredible sounding engine. I mean, anybody that sort of knows Formula One from the sixties and seventies, the the high high revving whale of a, a Cosworth DFV. This is a very similar engine. It's got a you know, an incredible soundtrack, and and it's it's really a very analog product as well. I think these days, uh, particularly with modern road cars being turbocharged and quite sort of electronic, this is really sort of very much an analog physical product, and that's why the drivers love it. What what makes the Hayabusa such a a suitable engine for your radical sports cars? I think the thing is, if you you look at a lot of superbike engines. Um, and when you open them up, they're all quite delicate, you know, because they're designed for, for lightweight and, and sort of low reciprocal weight and what have you. You look you look at a high booster engine, you can tell it's been built for power. You know, everything's very chunky. There's loads of meat in the bearings. There's loads of meat in the valve train. Everything is, is kind of, it's got enough beef in it to give you the potential to tune and to use it in, in applications outside of the motorcycle. So that really is, is the strength. The engine is just so robust. Yeah, you know, we've we've gone, you know, large capacity, longer stroke, bigger bore, you know, we've tried turbocharging, you know, we've done lots of different projects and special projects over the years. And they're just unburstable, you know, and, and it's great because the engine's lightweight. And in a lot of racing cars, you've got a complication as well of, you know, when you're trying to reduce weight, you've got the engine to consider and of course you've got the gearbox to consider as a weight. Well, of course, with a motorcycle, you've got engine and gearbox together. So the fact that the whole lot comes as one package we can get in an SR3, for example, because of the way that the engine is so tightly packaged, we can get the front rear weight distribution of the car pretty much 50-50, which is perfect. That's exactly what you want, you know, and that's what makes the car so well handling. So, you know, it's 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 an engine that's, you know, when you open it up, it's kind of built for purpose. It's You can see why our boosters are so popular with the tuning community and with guys that do you know, build drag bikes and, and straight line stuff because it's it's made for the job. As well as going fast, the Hayabusa is also good for going far. Shashant Shetty tells us about his epic trip on a boozer from, wait for it, the UK to India. Shashant, let me say straight away you are a hero for me. I'm a big fan of people who go on a long distance on a motorcycle. But UK to India on a Hayabusa... Yes, I think it was an experience. It was certainly quite an adventure. Uh, not very well thought out. What, where did the idea originate from? Were you down the pub? Uh, I was actually drinking in a bar in Thailand. Uh, I was doing this train ride from Moscow to China. As beautiful as the whole journey was, and it was over Christmas, it was all snow-covered and it was beautiful, but it seemed a bit boring. So I thought, right, I can do a different way. I can probably ride a bike back home. Uh, I had an XT660 at the time, which spent more time on the back of recovery trucks than it did on the streets. And I also found it was pretty slow. So I thought I can probably do it on something faster. And then as the bears kept happening, fast became faster and faster became <laughs> fastest. And then uh, suddenly this high boosters came into my mind. And uh, that, that that's how it began. But what about when you sobered up? Yeah, by then I told too many people down the pub. So I had to put my money where my mouth was. <laughs> so how, how do you how do you prepare for such a trip then, UK to India on a Hayabusa? 
Physically, I had a lot of prep. I walked from the car park to my office every morning. Uh, and bike-wise, the, the idea was just to keep it uh, stock as much as possible. We didn't really change much. There was some extra lighting. There was, I think I had raised handlebars just to ease things a bit. Uh, the bags were pretty standard. We, we really left it standard. It was running a different exhaust. Um, what else? It was running a race dynamics ECU. But apart from that, I was carrying some fuel. I was carrying a set of standard tires. It was really, really keeping it as standard as possible. What, what was your first impression when you rode it for the first time? Because it's a pretty speedy piece of kit, the Hayabusa, isn't it? And if you haven't ridden one before, that's all the more apparent. My uh, first stop, the XT was a very, very different bike. And I used to ride the XT every morning uh, or every day to work. And, and the most, you'd struggle to get a lot of speed out of it. And the Hayabusa would, would on, I, I, the first day I rode it, I discovered in second gear, I could go about almost twice as fast as I could on the XT. And my first thoughts were I had to keep my license between sort of April when I bought the bike and uh, October when I was going to do the trip, at the very least. I've, I've always loved the Busa when I was, uh, since when I was growing up. And when I grew up back then in India, it was very expensive to have big bikes, something I could never afford. And then when I moved to the UK, I just got caught out in things and never really got a bike for a while. And then, so I hadn't really ridden that many big bikes. Uh, and what about distance travelled previously on bikes? I mean, okay, you've been to China on the train, but what about riding bikes over a long distance? Were you quite new to that as well? Uh, not very, no. I used to uh, compete in the Red Di Himalaya, which was a cross-country rally in the Himalayas, uh, and I used to race cross-country back home. So I was used to sort of putting, uh, spending a lot of time on the saddle. What was the plan then? I mean, that route that you took, just remind us where you went. So I, I rode south through Europe, uh, heading east. Uh, once I crossed mainland Germany, into Austria, Slovenia, Croatia. Then I entered Serbia and into T Bulgaria and then into Turkey, all the way through Iran. The original plan at the time was to go into Pakistan and get to India that way. But I knew as an Indian citizen it was going to be a tough, tall order. So the, the, the backup plan was to get to Dubai instead of Pakistan from Iran. There's an overnight ferry that would get me from the south of Iran to Dubai. And I would then, in the spirit of adventure, get myself on what's called as a dough, which are sort of small rickety boats. And I'd get myself, I would spend, I think it was between a week and two weeks it would take to get from Dubai to Bombay, mm. and I would spend my time on that, and then I'd ride back home a thousand kilometers to Bangalore. So that, that was the original plan, or plan A and plan B, uh, but uh, obviously with the visa not happening, I ended up in Dubai as plan B, but the doors didn't happen either. That was no longer a thing. That had not happened for about three or four years since I, I uh, entered Dubai. So in the end, it had to be a commercial vessel, and I had to flow across. Okay, that, that's the journey very much sort of simplified and condensed. Talk to, talk to me about the suitability of the Hayabusa. Did it do okay? It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. The, one of the reasons, I mean, it, it seems as if it wasn't well thought through, but one of the reasons I chose it was I would probably have, have about a, a thousand or a bit more than that kilometers of not good roads. So I, I didn't. Mm. 
so you know, there wasn't, and even the not good roads, I, I wasn't really traveling through the highlands of Central Asia. So it it was just, it would probably have been just bad asphalt, no, no worse than that. So it didn't really warrant an adventure bike as far as I thought. And, and the hybrids are held up. It was fantastic. It was incredible all along. I, I only had the one issue when my rear caliper started to stick. Uh, and, and so the yeah, last yeah. thousand kilometers I rode without any brakes, but apart from that, it was fine. Um, you, you did some fairly serious mileage per day, didn't you? And on some occasions, you crammed a lot of miles into a very short space of time. I think I got into a bit of trance. Um, uh, but yeah, you get used to it. I think what I'd learned through spending time on the Himalayas, riding bikes in the Himalayas, was your body is extremely resilient. And, and you've sort of learned to deal with it differently. And I really was in a trance. I was just surviving on Snickers bars and nuts and cigarettes. I think there was not a single day when I woke up as early as I planned. Uh, and there was not a single day I finished as early as I planned. So I always, almost always ended up riding into the dead of the night. But it was pretty badly planned. But, you know, there, there was a mission and that helped. I think knowing that there was an end point, I had a plan and then I'd mentally prepared to either overachieve or underachieve based on where I was going to finish. Now, the, the bike was very much a big hit in Iran, wasn't it, with the general public? I think you became, or the bike at least, became a bit of a superstar. Absolutely. And in India, yes, very much so. Uh, it, it, Iran is like India. Our foreign import policies, uh, at least India until the late 80s or the mid-90s, is very similar to what Iran still is, uh, or was similar to what Iran still is, which means riding big bikes is... Is, is is not very common, or big bikes are not a very common thing. It's very different in India today, of course. Uh, but in Iran, I heard that it was illegal for local uh, for Iranians to ride big bikes. It was only reserved for the police. And and uh, someone even told me that there was this one ceremony where there was a day when they had permission to ride their bikes from home to a stadium in Tehran. Um, I don't know how far that is true, but you, I, I never saw another big bike. I rode the length, the width of the country, and I didn't see another big bike. So yes, people were naturally attracted to it. So everyone wanted to take pictures and you know, follow me with their high beams very, very closely, and stop me to take pictures and all sorts. It was, it was amazing. Um, how, how many miles did you end up doing in total, then, Shashank? Uh, I think it was around the ten thousand kilometers mark, Chris. I cannot remember, but it was roughly. The, I averaged around a thousand kilometers a day. I did ten days of riding till I got to around nine, nine and a bit, and then there was another thousand kilometers getting it across to Bangalore. So I would say around between ten and eleven thousand kilometers. Yeah, that's some good going, definitely. You know, as I say, I'm very impressed. You have a fan. Seems like the Hayabusa can satisfy in many different ways. After listening to those guys, I just want to get out and ride a boozer right now. Anyway, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss the next Inside Line podcast. See you then.